All right, so what am I thankful for? Well, of course, I'm thankful for my family. Three boys, beautiful wife. But I got a specific thing this time. It just happened yesterday. I was walking along the lake, Frost Lake, and it was pretty windy, which was cool. It was very cool, actually. It was down downright cold. And I realized for the first time I was hearing waves beat against the shore. You don't get a lot of that in this part of the world unless there's a storm. And then I realized up ahead was that point in the boardwalk where they had a little monument for someone named Dell. I can't remember his last name. And then there's rocks there. And so I sat on the rocks, felt the wind in my face and the waves hitting the rocks and just thought, feels like BC again. And I was very thankful. I love being here, but I can't deny it was beautiful to sit on those rocks and just hear the ocean. Yeah, Ross Lake for a few minutes was the ocean for me. And I'm thankful. All right, let's turn to our passage this morning. Philippians chapter 1, finishing it up. Starting at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to suffer, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Father God, teach us from your word this morning, I pray. Amen. An atom is a curious thing. I haven't seen one up close, but I know they exist. A stable atom is almost impossible to split apart. The force that holds the atom together has been nicknamed cosmic glue. And cosmic glue is incredibly hard to break. We have to build huge, multi-billion dollar machines to split stable atoms apart. In contrast to the strength of stable atoms, we can take small quantities of unstable atoms and use them to cause obscene amounts of damage. Long-term exposure to substances composed of unstable atoms can cause birth defects, cancer, sterility, the list goes on. But worse yet, when we actively manipulate unstable atoms, we produce horrific results. The heart of a nuclear weapon is a few kilograms of enriched uranium or plutonium, which consists of, you guessed it, unstable atoms. One only needs to see the detonation of a nuclear weapon to see what happens when we actively manipulate unstable atoms. Now, what does all of this have to do with our passage today? They didn't have nuclear power or nuclear warheads back then. 
But what I believe is that Paul here is talking about something in these words that rivals the power of the cosmic glue that holds the atom together. But let's just review a bit to see how we got here. Paul in this letter has finished discussing his own affairs. He sees, oh, and he said that no matter what's coming, he's ready to serve the Lord. He's locked up in prison in Rome, but he sees the outcome of his trial as being released so that he can rejoin his friends in Philippi. He now turns his attention to what's going on within the church in Philippi. He's kind of saying, enough about me, now let's talk about you. In this one brief paragraph, he manages to encapsulate the thrust of his entire message to them. He orders them to live in a way that brings glory to God. To do this by striving to work together. And he also encourages them to thrive under the opposition that they are facing from the hostile majority of people within their city. Whatever happens, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Once in a while, trying to communicate the intention of a biblical writer can be quite difficult. Since the original words aren't in English, they're in Hebrew or Koine Greek. They have to be translated. And as anyone fluent in two or more languages can tell you, sometimes the power or the passion of a statement can lose itself in translation, even if word for word the translation is correct. The verse I read you is word for word correct, reliable. I'm not questioning it. But they represent, these words represent so much more than can be printed on the printed page. Paul wants to tell his readers that come hell or high water, they had better behave as those who have been saved by the good news, non-fiction message of Jesus, born, died, and resurrected. This is the teacher delivering his ultimate challenge. This is the parent challenging his child to be the best he or she can be. This is the minister preaching his foundational truth. Live worthy of what you believe. You become something bigger. You become part of something bigger or better than the world has ever seen, has ever heard or believed. Now let your lives prove to others the power of the gospel message. Now when we hear commands from the Bible, we may tend to get a little defensive. I'm doing my best. I can't do it. That's easy for him to say, and on and on, the excuses go. We all have our own set of defense phrases when we're told to do something. Mine usually runs along the lines of, well, I know I should, but, and then fill in the rest of the sentence with the excuse of the day. We need to do ourselves a favor 
and take Paul's words for what they are. They're a calling. They're not a club to bash people with when they make a mistake. Nor are they simply good advice for living. No, the purpose of these words is to call the Philippians, these people he actively loves, and all of the others who may read them, like us, to live as if they really believe that Jesus Christ is alive and well and saving souls. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, dead on a cross, resurrected by God? Well, live it. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins through his sacrifice? Then live it. Do you believe in the reality of heaven? Live it. Live it. That is what Paul is calling them and calling us to do. And he wants them to live so well that if for some reason he doesn't actually manage to reach Philippi, he'll hear in Rome how they are conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together with one accord for the faith of the gospel. Paul does expect to be released from prison. His plan after his release is to come and join them in Philippi for a time of reunion and renewal. This is the plan, but we have to remember that as he's writing this letter, he's still in prison. He's awaiting trial. He's unsure of the outcome. So he plans to join them again, but he can't be certain until it actually happens. Thus the seeming uncertainty in the verse. But that said, regardless of his presence or not, he wants the church to be able to live strong, healthy, Christian lives, independent of his presence. He never sought to have groupies who dressed like him or bragged about him or tried to elevate him above all others. He sought to produce Christians who'd lived like Jesus Christ and elevate him above all others. He wants the Philippians to know that whether he returns to them or not, they are still called to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, after calling them to live worthy lives, he then explains how. There are many ways we live out our Christian faith, but Paul has one particular thing in mind. Every letter Paul writes in the New Testament addresses a problem that the receiving church was dealing with. In the Philippians' case, the problem was unity or working together. It must have been at an early stage because he's waited a whole chapter of this letter to bring it up. But it's still an emerging problem, and Paul wants to squish it like a bug before disunity is allowed to take root. The reason that he now brings his attention to this issue of unity is that he knows the power of a church that is unified in worship and purpose. Unity in the church is like that force, the cosmic glue 
that holds an atom together. When we work together, it's almost impossible to be broken up. A church that finds itself bonding together under the love and power of God is fearsome. It's an awesome thing that God can use to do great things. Dissent in the church, on the other hand, destabilizes it and makes it prone to blow apart. And just like that unstable atom, the effect of dissent can cause obscene amounts of damage. Untended, it slowly eats away at the integrity of a church. Manipulated, it can blow the church apart. Hence the passion behind Paul's commands. Live worthy. Stand firm in one spirit. Contend as one for the faith of the gospel. He knew that unity would empower them. But disunity would kill them. He also knew that they were in a particular situation where dissent was especially harmful and unity would be especially helpful. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. The Philippians had a lot to fear from those who opposed them. Their Christian faith in their time caused them to stand out for a variety of reasons. The freedom of association between slaves and citizens, men and women, and different social classes within the church was very unusual and very suspicious. The practice of communion, which we'll take later this morning, was referred to as the eating of Christ's body and blood, was mistaken for cannibalism. And added to all this was their refusal to worship the emperor of Rome, which was expected of all of the inhabitants of the empire. And the Christians of that day were easy targets for abuse and scorn. It would be impossible to bear this kind of pressure alone. They needed to be there for each other in this time of crisis. Sticking together wasn't optional. It was essential. Unity would help them. Would help them help each other. And it would also make a powerful argument to their enemies for the legitimacy of their faith. Take a minute to imagine that you're one of the hostile majority. You're one of the citizens of this loyal Roman city. And you wanted to find out a bit more about these upstart Christians, followers of the way they were called back in that day. You watch these people who call themselves Christians or, or whatever other label you've heard. One or two of your friends has spoken about them. And soon, you find out they're meeting in the house next to yours. You take a moment to eavesdrop on their meeting. You press your ear to the wall, and you listen. Now, what if you hear them bickering and arguing and fighting? What would you think? What a joke. Yak, yak, yak. 
I'm calling the guards. But what if you heard them praying for one another and sharing the word and giving to each other as they had need? What if you heard them sharing stories about Jesus Christ, this carpenter you'd heard about? What if you heard them singing praises to God? Well, who knows? Maybe you would call the guards, but you might just let them be since they're really not causing you harm. And if you were drawn in by their love and compassion, you might just knock on the door and join them. I dare say that if you heard them being the church as it should be, you would at least be tempted to take them more seriously. And that's what Paul is getting at. He wants the church to use their common bond to stand out from the crowd. To be a sign to those who oppose them that they have something special, something worth suffering for, and something even worth dying for. If the early believers snap at each other and bicker, then no one's going to take them seriously. But if they grow and thrive as a group of believers, they'll bring positive attention to the gospel. But this positive attention will come at a price. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul is reminding them that suffering is part of the Christian faith. Do you ever hear those people on TV promising you wealth and prosperity if you only have enough faith? They are so far from the truth. They take the riches of salvation and twist it into a hope of riches on earth. They obviously skip some of Paul's harder words, not to mention the teachings of Jesus himself. Remember the Beatitudes, the blessed are the poor, the blessed are the meek, in the Gospel of Matthew. Well, listen to how they end. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of, our, because of righteousness. I almost said unrighteousness. That would have been a boo-boo. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In these verses, Jesus himself is warning us that we will face opposition because we believe in him. Listen to Peter talking about the possible price of doing good. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then Paul again here in our last verse and elsewhere tells his readers to expect hostility for simply being a Christian. It's part of the package. Now why is that? It's because the gospel scares those who would rather have people following another way of living. 
It takes business away from powerful interests. It defies the entrenched social order. It reveals the poverty of the alternatives. And it creates life in a dying world. Those who benefit from the depravity of the world don't like things that threaten their well-being. So they fight. They fought it in Paul's day with open persecution. And that continues to this day in many countries. The advancement of time and technology has not made us a more humane race. Countless Christians are currently suffering as living proof of that. Those of us who lived in more so-called civilized countries can still see opposition as well. We're not being tossed to the lions quite yet, but practicing our faith in our communities isn't getting any easier either. I'm not going to go into a rant about the evils of the government, the media and everybody else who may be seen by some as enemies of the faith. But I will say this, if a Canadian church sees fit to follow along with the social norm and serve as a feel-good chaplain to the public, it probably won't take a lot of flack. But if a church makes a public stand on an issue that goes against the flow, watch out. Taking a stand is what we sometimes need to do, but it also makes us easier targets. Paul's last observations in this paragraph simply back this up with an observation from his own life. You saw me suffering for my faith, and now you know that I'm still suffering for my faith, just like what you're going through. It's the type of assertion that makes Paul's words that much more authentic. He's not preaching about opposition from a cozy church hall. He's writing about it from a dark and dreary, dripping wet Roman prison cell. He's taken the whipping. He's suffered the loss of freedom. He's felt the anger of the mobs. He's been there. And like anyone who's experienced something significant, he's worth listening to. But what does all this say to us today? One more sip. Paul's warning about not letting dissent fester in the ranks are words that we need to hear. We all need the cohesiveness that we can muster, the unity, if we want to be a force for God in this city. For it is only in unity that we can thrive and grow as His church. If we spend our time bickering and nattering about each other instead of working with each other, we'll find that our witness in this community will erode away. And once that's worn down, it's very hard to rebuild. But if we can show our neighbors, our friends, our families, that this church is ready to stand as one for the sake of the gospel, then we'll not be able to keep up with what God wants to do through us and to us. Unity within the church, 
ties us together with God's love and God's will. And that's something that's harder to break than even the cosmic glue that he created to hold the atom together. We also will need to know unity if we're to stand up for the gospel in an increasingly anti-gospel environment. We thank God that we live in a nation where freedom of worship is still a primary value. But we must never take this for granted. Not only this, but we must not be afraid to confront the society we live in when it takes a direction that is against the will of God for all people. Paul's final words in this paragraph boil down to this. Live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and do it as a family, together. Whatever happens, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen.